Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, if you have been here at Christ the More, if you heard me preach, you know that I have a particular strange bit of structure when it comes to my sermons. I often start off what I like to call a cold open, right? A little bit before I do that prayer and we really get into the sermon. Sometimes it's a story. Sometimes it's just a preview of the message to come. Sometimes it's a series of really terrible jokes. Like the more terrible they can be, the more likely I am to use them. But today is going to be a little different um, because as I was working on our scripture readings and kind of going through them, there is a, a concept that just coming back to mind uh, over and over again. And I tried to find a way to, to share this as an entire message. There, is just, there isn't enough there for an entire sermon. Um, and also, to be quite honest, it's not necessarily the main thrust of, of any of our readings, but it kept coming to mind enough, and in light of the context of where we are, I figured, well, I guess God wants me to share this. So, here we are. So you're going to get like a sermon and a third, give or take. But don't worry, I cut down the other part of the sermon, so we'll get out of here by like 1 p.m. or so. It'll be great. Um, so there's an interesting bit of American history that in the, the 1700s, 1800s, as people came in from Europe, they wanted kind of a slice of the European life and the European culture and customs. And so one of the things that they did is they saw a very popular trend in Europe, which was called Ale, A-L-L-E, apostrophe thing, E, uh, which means alleyway, right? That's where we get the term of taking trees and lining them alongside a path, like in a garden or something like this. And they said, oh, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, we want to do this in America. And since America is basically one big park, one big garden, they would do it alongside not just paths, but instead streets, right? Lining streets with all the, these beautiful symmetrical trees. You can picture right down uh, Savannah, Georgia, they'd use like live oaks with the, the Spanish moss hanging off of it, beautiful things, right? Up north in the northeast in the New England area, they didn't have live oaks. And so they were looking to see what tree can we use to create this nice appearance of these, this kind of hallway of trees. Um, and they found one that it grows up and kind of sprouts out like this and then kind of bends over ever so slightly on the end. It almost looks like a fountain. And that's the American elm. And so they began planting these American elms on prominent streets and cities, which is why if you go to most cities in the Northeast, they have a fairly prominent street named Elm Street, right? Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Um, Elm Street, and because they would make these big alleys with these elm trees that were just gorgeous and hanging out over the, over the pathway, over the road. Um, and in fact, throughout then the, the American history, some of the more famous trees, maybe you didn't even know we have famous trees, but like the Liberty Tree in Boston uh, that was central for the Sons of Liberty, um, that was an elm tree, an American elm tree. And it became so popular to have these American elm trees that they believed that it made up the vast majority of the trees in any given city, particularly in the Northeast. Well, come 1930, a shipment of lumber comes over uh, to build some stuff, and on that lumber is a fungus. And uh, the, some beetles bore into that lumber, and then they take that fum fungus and they find that they really like American elm trees, and they begin eating, and as they eat the tree, which the tree can handle the beetles, it gets that fungus in there and ultimately kills the tree. We know this now to be called Dutch elm disease because that shipment came from that area of the world. 
and the trees, because there were so many all placed in the same succession, these beetles were just, it was like a feast. They were just going from tree to tree to tree, and they're spreading this Dutch elm disease like crazy. And within a couple of years, all the trees are dead. And people are looking at this saying, this is terrible. We need to do something about this. And so a decade or so later, after World War II, they developed a pesticide to kill off these beetles that we now know to be DDT. Not a great thing. Um, it caused a lot of issues. And also, it didn't kill any of the beetles. So it didn't even take care of the Dutch elm disease. See, all of this could have been prevented if they had done more than just elm trees, because they could have isolated it. They could have said, oh, we got to make sure that these, this stays over here. They could have caught the beetles. But because it was spreading so quickly, it took out pretty much most of the trees in the cities. And then because of that, they said, well, let's not plant more trees, because that was a whole problem. And, and that created what we now call heat islands in cities. We've gotten, gotten away from that and planted trees again. But all of this came because they kept planting the same tree over and over and over again. Now, as I was looking at our scripture readings, something that stood out to me in our epistle reading that, that I read, that Ed was going to read, but my fault, didn't have it there. Um, in the epistle reading, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in a city called Corinth. Corinth was a, a large, vibrant city. It was a port city, actually very similar to Houston. It was very diverse. Houston is, as of 2021, the most diverse city in the United States. Corinth was very similar. And as he's writing to them, he's saying, I thank God for who you are. I thank God for, for the Christians, for the community that's there, because you're so vast, you're so diverse. There is every spiritual gift reflected within your community. And then I look at our gospel reading and I see two disciples of John the Baptist who became the first disciples of Jesus per the gospel of John. And when he finally meets Simon Peter, he says, you're going to be called Peter. He actually says Cephas, which means Peter, which is such a strange way to translate that because that doesn't make any sense to us. Uh, Cephas is the uh, Aramaic, meaning stone or rock. And then it says, which means Peter, which is the Greek, meaning stone or rock. So when you have that context, like, oh, that makes sense now, right? And I look at the fact that these, these various disciples came together. And, of course, Jesus' disciples were from all sorts of different backgrounds. They came from, from different places and different, different stories. The fact that Jesus is speaking and naming one of the most influential people in the history of the world, naming him an Aramaic name that then became a Greek name, I can't help but think about the concept of diversity. As we sit here tomorrow being Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and I got to tell you, I, I know some of you immediately, your, your hackles came up because diversity has become a bit of a political word, which is idiotic, by the way, because this isn't about politics. This is about theology, because if you look at how God operates, if you look just in the gospel story, you see Romans, you see Israelites, you see Samaritans, you see Cyrenians, you see Philistines, you see Ethiopians, you see tax collectors and prostitutes, you see Sanhedrin, you see the priests, you see all these different people with all these different backgrounds that Jesus is working through to spread the gospel. And within the church, we need to seek that same level of, of diversity. I'm not talking about ethnicity. I'm not talking about skin color. I'm talking about the diversity of human experience. Recognizing that we all have different things that brought us to this moment right now. 
For some of you, you were raised in the church. You grew up in the pews. And when you wrestle with God, it's purely intellectual. You're going, okay, well, God, what does alien righteousness mean? And, and what did the, the, this letter in, in James mean here? And you're going, I don't, I, this, these are the big, big, deep questions that I have. But for some of you, you're new to faith. And you're going, who is Jesus? And what does he mean? What does he stand for? Who's he, what is he all about? And those two experiences coming together make us stronger as a community, make us stronger as a people. I'm reminded of, I was doing, uh, I do a communion chapel once a month over at Eagle's Trace. I don't know if it's that way. I just pointed that direction. Um, but I do a, a communion service and we were sitting there one week or one month after a fairly light attended thing. And, and somebody goes, you know, I wish we could get more people. Surely there are more Lutherans here at Eagle's Trace. And I went, well, I'm not looking for more Lutherans. <laughs> I'm looking for more people, more Christians. It's not about your background. It's not about being Lutheran isn't a heritage. It's not something you're born into. It's not an ethnicity. No, being Lutheran just means that you understand the richness of God's grace. It means you recognize that we are saved by grace through faith. It means that you understand uh, the same concept of God's love for us. That's what it means to be Lutheran. And you can come from all sorts of different backgrounds and have different stories. And that's beautiful because that is our testimony and so we, the church, if we're focused on, on people looking the same, acting the same, talking the same, having the same background, then we're not a church. We're a social group. We're a team. If you're focused on people have to act exactly the same way, if people have to talk exactly the same way, people have to, to speak the same language, I laughed because I remember one time we had a, a guest preacher at my church in Florida, and he, he shared the Lord's Prayer in Spanish. And this lady came up to me afterwards and said, I just wish he'd prayed in the normal language. And I was like, well, the normal language would be Aramaic. So, but if your idea is that everybody comes together and looks and talks and sounds exactly the same, you're not a religion, you're a cult. But we're a religion. We follow Christ. And may we embrace that diversity, that diversity of our human experience, that diversity of our faith background, that diversity of the way that we came to know the love of our God. What do you guys say? Want to do the actual sermon now? Want to start that? Sure. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for today. I thank you for the chance to share that and whatever is yet to come. Lord, I pray that you, uh, you bless the words of my mouth, that they are your words. I pray that you move me out of the way, that you would help us all to be strong enough and courageous enough to submit ourselves to you, that your Holy Spirit would be at work speaking to each and every one of us. We pray all these things through your Son, Jesus, in his name, amen. Well, the main for this second part, Sermon 2.0, chapter 2 of the sermon, uh, we're going to be looking at that gospel reading from John chapter 1. This is uh, the way that, that John shares the baptism of Jesus. He doesn't tell it firsthand. He says that John the Baptist kind of shared it, right? Um, but the question that we see Jesus ask right off the bat, in fact, these are the first words that Jesus speaks in this gospel. He says, what are you seeking? What do you want? What are you looking for? However you want to translate that. What I love about this whole conversation, by the way, is that there's like a surface level that you can interpret it, and then there's a much deeper way that you can interpret every single statement in this conversation. So it goes like this. John's hanging out with his disciples, John the Baptist, and he says, look, there goes the Lamb of God. And they're like, well, 
you're old news, buddy. And they go off and they follow Jesus, right? Which is cool with John the Baptist. He's all about it. And so they're following Jesus and they shout out, Rabbi. And he turns around and says, what do you want? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? And they say, what are you, where, where are you staying? And he responds, come and see. Now that's a pretty standard conversation that you could have between people, maybe catching up with somebody at Starbucks. But there is a lot packed into each of those statements. So that first question, what are you seeking? Right? This could be Jesus just responding, yeah, what, why'd you try and get my attention? But what if he's asking a much deeper question of what are you seeking? I asked this question during my little Advent video series that I'm sure some of you watched. What do you hope for? What are you looking for in this world? It's a question a lot of people ask each other, right? This is what spouses should be asking each other. It's what friends, family members should be asking. What are you looking for out of this? That you should be asking yourself, what am I hoping for? What am I seeking? What am I after? It's a question that perhaps you don't know the answer to. Perhaps it, it doesn't come right to mind, but that's okay because you're in good, good company because the disciples didn't seem to know because what they stammer out is, where, where are you staying, right? It feels so much like a high school boy who's been trying to get to the attention of his crush and she finally turns and goes, what? And he's like, uh, uh, what's your next class? Like, I, I didn't know what else to say. I was panicking, right? They, I, I'm sure they're not like, hey, Jesus, what, what, what hotel are you staying? Are you at the, you at the Ramada down the store? You, you're a big manger guy. You're staying in a manger? Like, where? I, I don't think that's what they're asking. In fact, if you look at this idea of where are you staying, where, where it actually means remaining, as in remain in me and I also remain in you. There's some extra depth to this. It's almost like they're asking, Jesus, where's your kingdom? Jesus, what are you all about? What do you stand for? Where are you? Where do you remain? What, where do you stand in this world? And I love Jesus' response. This is the calling of his first disciples. He doesn't give them a three-point sermon. He doesn't outline the next plan of the next three years. Well, this is going to happen. We're going to go here. I think we're going to stop. But no, he just says, well, come and see. Come and see. Come check it out. And again, this could be surface level. He's like, oh, you want to see my place? Come on. I'm building a media room. It's going to be great. I got these new things called chairs. They're going to take over everything. Um, no, he could be saying that, but I think that there's something more. He's inviting them into his life. Come and see. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're wondering what Christianity is all about. Maybe you're wondering what God's all about, how God views your life, how Jesus would view the church these days. His invitation to you is come and see. Because we have a God who doesn't just shout from on high, hey guys, you're forgiven now, it's all good, go about your business. No, he enters into our life, into our struggle, and walks around among us. He models what it looks like to follow his way. Come and see. And even after that, even after he walked on this earth, he offers us scripture where he speaks to us. There are times that I read scripture, I'm like, I don't necessarily see this and what's here, but God's certainly speaking through this, like how I got diversity out of those two scripture readings. But sometimes God speaks to you through his word. It's a living, breathing thing. Come and see. Now also from this interaction, 
there's something else that I love. As I mentioned during my children's message, I love show and tell, always have. And like I said, I always forgot my thing for show and tell, and I was always scrambling last minute. I'm not saying I was scrambling this morning, but those dice do usually sit on my desk here in my office, just putting, putting that out there. But this idea of show and tell, I think it's slightly backwards. I think it should be tell and show. Because if we look at Andrew, the disciple that's talked about, poor Andrew, if you've ever been the sibling that's referred to by your, your brother or sister, oh, this is, this is Tyler, that, that's Kelly's brother, right? Poor, poor Andrew, he's mentioned as the brother of Simon Peter. Simon Peter isn't even a character yet in this gospel, and yet he's like, oh, you know Andrew. Actually, you don't. You know Simon Peter? Well, he's related to Andrew. That's why he's, he's worth mentioning. Andrew is significant, though, because A, he brings Peter to Jesus, he goes and tells him, he says, hey, guess what? We found the Messiah. John the Baptist, who I've been following, you heard about, uh, he said that this is the one. We found him. And then he brings him along. But then uh, Andrew does something else later on in the gospel. He's the one who brings the boy with the five loaves and the two fish to Jesus to multiply and feed the 5,000. Andrew is a teller and a shower. He says, hey, 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 this is big. Come on, let's go check this out. That's what we as Christians should be doing. Boy, we are so quick to share our favorite barbecue place. We're so quick to say, I've been listening to this podcast. It's real good. You, you should check it out. We're so quick to point to so many things. Hey, I got this new financial guy. He's a wizard. You should talk to him. But do we do that with Jesus? Do we share our faith with the same excitement? Do we tell people and then show them with our lives? Show them what it looks like to live as a Christian, to endure the pain and the frustration of this world while clinging on to the hope of God. Now, maybe you're sitting here saying, uh, not me. They don't want anybody looking at my life. I've heard people say they don't put a Jesus fish on their car because their driving is not a testimony to Jesus. Um, and maybe that's you. Maybe you're thinking, my life is not a testimony to faith. My life is not a testimony to Christianity. Oh, I'm betting it is. Because Christianity doesn't mean being perfect. It's not a, a Christmas letter where everything is all polished up and don't look behind the cracks. No, it's not a facade. Being a Christian isn't about that Facebook post that brags about how great everything is. Being a Christian means showing off where we've fallen short. It's scary. It's dangerous to be vulnerable. And yet that's exactly how we show what it means to follow Jesus Christ. By pointing and saying, this is where I've fallen short. This is where I'm struggling. This is, I have to go to counseling for this. These are the wounds in my life. But praise God because he's getting me through it. Being a Christian means showing off the patches and the stitches it means sharing the repair. And may we have the courage and the strength to share the repair that is in our lives. That's where this diversity of experience comes back in. Oh, you thought I was going to forget about that part. Bring it all back together. The diversity of experiences, some of us have been in church our entire lives, and our struggles may be different than somebody who says, I've been wandering in the darkness for as long as I can remember. And then suddenly my eyes were opened and I saw what it finally, finally, I saw what it means to be loved. This world has thrown so much love at me, but it wasn't until I came to know God 
that I came to know that he was willing to lay himself on the line, not for second person plural, but for second person singular, you. That diversity of experience means you can speak that testimony, and there are people who need to hear it. That's why we have four tellings of the same life of Jesus, because we have these different experiences coming together. The diversity of our faith is powerful. God brought you to this moment. God helped to write your story. Yeah, we, we have our mistakes. We have our sin. We have our own free will that has formed it. But God is working through it. How are you going to use that story to share, to show and tell? How are you going to use your experience with God to help others to stop wandering in that darkness, but to see the light, to be, to be clean? Yes, it is terrifying to be vulnerable. What does that look like, to be vulnerable, to, to share our pain, to share that repair? What does it look like to point to God in our hard times? What does it look like to share our faith? Come and see. Amen.